Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Farhan Samanani, the anthropologist whose recent book explores how the intricacies of our own local neighborhoods can teach us big lessons about the world. In our increasingly polarized societies, it's not often we get a book saying that difference is our greatest strength. But Farhan Samanani is a Canadian social anthropologist whose recent book, How to Live with Each Other, does just that. It looks at how communities thrive when embracing their diversity. Farhan's work is global in its scope, with studies taking him around the world, but its local communities, no less so than the streets of Kilburn, a neighbourhood in northwest London, which informs most of his book. Kilburn is one of the most diverse areas in the UK. Hosting the discussion is Depot Follian. He's senior editor and writer at Vice, and you must check out his own discussion he recently had on Intelligence Squared with Yusra El Bagher about his fascinating book, Africa is Not a Country, which breaks down the nuances and diversity of the African continent. And a quick reminder before we go to the episode, if you'd like to support Intelligence Squared and get access to even more deep dive discussions and debates, maybe you want to check out Intelligence Squared Extra for our premium benefits on Apple Podcasts. It's just one click hit the subscribe button in your app for exclusive episodes each month such as a fascinating backstage interview with economist Daniel Kahneman ad-free listening and early access and if you're not an Apple user well we're working on it to give you access too now back to today here's Depot and Farhan in conversation Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Farhan. Thank you, Deepak. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. I think we should start by finding out a little bit more about you. You are a social cultural anthropologist. Tell us what that is. That's right. Um, anthropology is this wonderful discipline. So if you go back to the sort of Greek roots, you know, you've got anthropos, which is sort of mankind, humankind, and you've got pology, you know, biology, sociology, whatever. It's just the study of mankind, which is wonderfully vague. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> And, and, and actually, in, in that broadness, I think, um, lies anthropology's real strength, because what the discipline has really become um, is one that tries to learn from the vast scope of human experience and the vast scope of human diversity, both sort of historically, but especially today, and to, and, and to take all of that as sort of fundamental expressions of our humanity, right? So at one, at one point, it was a rather colonial discipline, and it was really thinking about different cultures very hierarchically. But what it's evolved into in the modern day is a way of looking at otherness, looking at difference, looking at things that might be sort of fundamentally destabilizing to how we live and how we think and what we value, and saying that is just as integral, just as human, just as fundamental to the human experience as our, as our own experiences and our own values and our own perspectives. We're always seeing the world from a specific cultural and social perspective, right? And there's no getting beyond that. Um, and so... You know, the way I like to think of this is really in terms of this one um, sort of fact that I quote in the book, that is, you know, 75% of our brain's development um, in terms of, you know, the, the growth of our brains, its final weight, 75% of that growth happens outside of the womb as we are sort of, you know, out in the world interacting with the stuff that's around us. And so 75% of our neurological development happens in a context that is culturally conditioned. And what you can see as we grow and learn is that we become sort of fundamentally different sorts of people, right? So the ways in which we, co- we become self-aware, the, the values that we internalize, the ways in which we learn to sort of control our body or sort of attune our senses to the world around us, all of that is shaped in very profound ways by culture, which is the environments that surround us, the sort of ways in which people behave, the understandings that that behavior conveys, the stuff that's around us. All, the, all these things are cultural and all these things shape our ways of seeing and knowing and being. Um, in a fundamental way, right? Um, we couldn't be human without internalizing some of this stuff. And what can we learn from that? That's really, really fascinating. And you explain it in this incredibly global way. And yet the book starts somewhere very specific. It starts in Kilburn. And that's really the driving force for much of your understandings uh, that you represent in the book, as well as what drives you know, many of the sort of experiments that you carry out. 
I guess I should ask, how did you end up in Kilburn and what's kept you coming back? Right. Um, so I'll, I'll start by telling you a little bit more about anthropology, which, you know, we s- said it, it's, it's, it used to be this very colonial discipline, right? Um, in, in the context of the British Empire, it was about going out and sort of studying the people who the Brits were colonizing, um, often with intent to better understand how to sort of govern those societies, right? And so it, it was interested in difference, but it was interested in difference in this very instrumental way. But throughout that process, anthropologists sort of immersed themselves in these societies and got to know people and sort of had all these sorts of destabilizing, world-shaking lessons um, that sort of upended the very possibility of thinking in that kind of colonial way in some ways, right? That, like I said, you, you recognize the sort of fundamental humanity in others' experiences, no matter how sort of vastly they might differ from your own. And what I like to do as an anthropologist is sort of take that perspective of taking difference very seriously, taking everyday experience very seriously, but it's almost flipping the lens 180 degrees and using that as a way of looking at British society. And I think, I think that's, you know, first of all, essential to getting over that colonial heritage is saying, you know, if these ways of looking matter, they better matter for everybody. But also that, you know, there's all these unexplored sort of forms of wisdom and different ways of living and sort of stories that we're not telling on a sort of grand scale that we can find even within the sort of nooks and crannies of our own societies. Um, and so that's the sort of anthropology I like to do. And I think when you think, you know, where, where in the UK has untold stories, where in the UK has sort of untapped wisdom, one of the places um, you might look are in these sorts of diversifying neighborhoods where, you know, rapid social change, high turnover of people, people coming from all over the world. Um, they're often painted as sites of anxiety, right? Sites where sort of Oh, sites of social upheaval. Um, they're, they're the places we debate about in the news, right? They're the places people sort of wring their hands about. Um, we, we pull endlessly, you know, is, is Britain becoming too diverse? Is it eroding solidarity for the welfare state? Is immigration sort of out of control, right? Um, but, but maybe we can learn something different if we just look at how people who actually live that as a reality, live in these very diverse places, have come to sort of live their lives, find ways of connecting, find ways of understanding each other and find ways of building things in common. So what drew me to Kilburn was that it was a place with exactly that history, you know, stretching all the way back into the colonial era, where, for instance, um, it was one of the places where Jewish migrants and Irish migrants came um, and settled in, 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 a, in an era, sort of late 1800s, early 1900s, where they often weren't welcome in other parts of London to, you know, sort of the post-war era where you had Indian and Caribbean migrants who were not only coming and settling in Kilburn, but who are actually, you know, finding homes or finding jobs because of those earlier waves of migration to some extent, right? So in an era of no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, you know, mm-hmm. the Irish are going, oh yeah, you know, we know what, we know what that experience is like. And hey, there's a, you know, there's a guy down the pub who might hook you up with a job because there was sort of a shared history, but also all these divergences. And so that became an incredibly fascinating place to look. There's a really great line in the book. You say, Kilburn teams with difference. And so, I, you know, from, from what you've just said, there is that sense that it was that difference that connected people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, was, it was absolutely that difference that connected people or that sort of people saw in that difference a sort of creative resource for remaking their lives, right? Especially migrants, but not only migrants. And I, th- I, th- I think the other thing that was really worth learning from Kilburn was the way in which difference in that, in that sense could be a resource, right? So when we talk about, you know, migration and diversity within society today, often what we end up doing is we map a load of different contemporary anxieties onto sort of the category of the migrant or the category of the, you know, sort of minority. And some of those anxieties have to do with the place of social difference more broadly in society, you know, so that we worry that our communities are fragmenting, that families sort of, you know, lost the meaning that it once had, um, that people are sort of living all these diverse lifestyles that are that our politics are fragmenting right that we can't agree about anything anymore and increasingly that we can't even agree about reality right um who's telling the truth who has the right sort of narrative who has the right sort of science right and that breakdown on the one hand often does get mapped especially onto sort of migrants and minorities and racialized groups but on the other hand that that breakdown you know that sort of proliferation of differences in lifestyles and forms of knowledge in um, all these sorts of things that don't just relate to migration is a broader source of anxiety. And so the book isn't just about challenging the stories that we tell about migration or diversity or race, but actually challenging the stories that we tell about difference more generally, um, about political difference, about social difference, you know, whether that's class or it's, again, profession or lifestyle or anything like that. 
and, and really looking at how people build in creative, productive ways with those forms of difference rather than sort of having them divide them apart. I mean, that's really, really fascinating. I think that what's so interesting is that a lot of this difference that we see, especially in cities, I live in East London, an incredibly diverse part of the city, mm-hmm. um, in Bethnal Green, probably, you know, one of the most diverse parts of the city. A lot of this difference that we see was deliberately created. Much of this was encouraged after the Second World War, when, you know, the British government encouraged immigration into the country mm-hmm. to help rebuild the nation. Can, can you tell us a bit more about that history? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one way I like to think of this book is sort of, it's the two stories of the empire windrush, you know? Um, and this, this, this isn't in the book, actually. So this is some bonus content for you and your listeners, really. Um, I think that's the treats that we're looking for today. Yeah, yeah. DVD special features. Yeah. Um, and, and so the two stories of the empire windrush, right? So, so we, we, you know, we, we talk about the windrush endlessly. Um, it's the sort of the ship that inaugurated the kind of era of post-war migration, right? And, and in that post-war era, the British state, as you say, and British employers recruited very heavily from the current colonies and former colonies in the Commonwealth to sort of help rebuild, right? To, to staff the NHS and public transportation and heavy industry. But the Windrush wasn't that, right? So the Windrush was a ship that was leaving from Jamaica where that had a whole bunch of unsold seats and some Jamaican entrepreneurs basically set out and said, hey, you know, cheap tickets, come try, try, make your new life, you know, in, in the UK um, because because they have need for labor. Right. So it was, it was really an entrepreneurial exercise. And, and a lot of people took it up because, you know, in the colonial education that existed in Jamaica at the time, the UK was the motherland. Right. And this was people were taught to feel a sort of sense of belonging and connection to the UK. And not not only that, but they, they possessed, in effect, equal citizenship. So legally on paper, they had the same sorts of rights and entitlements as people born in the mainland UK. So it really was the motherland, right? Um, and so the, the Empire Windrush arrives and the London Evening Standard charters a plane with a banner flying behind it saying, welcome home. And they run that, that same headline, welcome home, as their sort of front page headline that day. Right? And that, that's one story of the Windrush is, it's a story of sort of home made in this sort of transnational way by diverse people who sort of, you know, feel a sense of belonging and connection to a place that they haven't visited yet, um, but, but be- believe and believe with people in the UK that they can build something together. And that's one story. And then the other story of the Empire Windrush is because it was sort of an unplanned migration as a way, the government panicked, right? And before the, the passengers had even sort of made it to shore, Government ministers were labeling this as an incursion. I mean, that word is a literal quote, right? It's an incursion. And they spent basically the next sort of 14 years until 1962, where they passed the first serious piece of immigration legislation, trying to prove that migrants from the colonies and the Commonwealth were a social problem. So this was decided before anybody set foot on shore. It was decided that migrants were going to be a social disruption, that they were going to compete for jobs, that they were going to erode communities. And then, and then what happened is, you know, the government sort of deployed police men with sort of watchdog duties aggressively into these communities. You know, they, they commissioned report after report after report, trying to show that the social problem that they already sort of knew was a thing, you know, had some sort of basis in reality. And it took them 14 years to find a way of effectively justifying immigration legislation for who were their own citizens or their own subjects based on the sort of cooked up narrative of social disruption. And so in part, you know, what the book tries to do is it tries to trace that story as to how we've come, especially in the post-World War era, to think of difference as a threat, right? How we've sort of cooked up the story as it is, right? But on the other hand, it traces that sort of welcome home, right? It traces how from the get-go people have had these sorts of diverse, creative ways of rethinking what it means to belong, what it means to come together, what it means to be at home, um, and what it means to be British as well. Those two things, the two stories you just described, seem incongruent. You know, it seems you have this one story of welcome home and this, you know, transaction, come and, come and build the future of this country. And on the other hand, an attempt to scare people about that coming change that you've invited people to come and be a part of. How do people justify those two things living together from, from your work and your understanding? I mean, it, it just doesn't seem to be two things that can fit together. And yet a singular government works to try and make those things fit together. Is that fundamentally about how 
we struggle to understand the concept of differences and identities? So I think it's a, it's a layered thing, right? Something that a lot of scholars of that migrant history and of race in Britain have argued, and I think, I think I find fairly convincing is, you know, that part of that kind of double message, inclusion and exclusion, it's, it's a great way to get cheap labor, right? <laughs> because if you're bringing over migrants, you know, and you're saying, on the one hand, they have an important role to play in society, and on the other hand, but they pose a social threat, then it sort of justifies, you know, leaving them out a little bit from the welfare state and, um, you know, leaving them out a little bit um, from the job market, you know, just allowing a little bit of sort of free reign for the discrimination that keeps people um, out of certain industries um, and desperate for jobs. And right, that, that, was, that was sort of justified for decades after, in the post-World War era, that discrimination was sort of a private civil right. Um, and so we couldn't possibly infringe on people's, you know, ability to hire who they want or stuff like that, right? And then and, and that, that made for cheap labor, basically, right? So, so there, is, there is an argument, and I think it's very credible, that the sort of double story of inclusion and exclusion has fed really into the economic exploitation and the precariousness that a lot of migra migrant communities faced historically, but also today in the UK. But I also don't think that's the whole story. Because I think the other thing that goes on, again, if you look at everyday lives and connections in places like Kilburn, is that people are fundamentally talented and open about how they come together, you know? Um, but these politics play out in different ways. So part of the argument that I made in the book is that kind of the politics of diversity plays out at two levels. It plays out at the level of sort of face-to-face -face connections, communities, civil society, you know, the sort of local organizations that people build together, the chats that they have at the school gate or on the streets, you know? Personal connections. Um, and then they play out at the level of the sort of stories we tell about our societies, who we are, who we could be, who belongs, who doesn't. Um, and it's perfectly possible to sort of get one of these forms of politics right and the other one wrong, right? So I tell a story in one of the chapters of these two guys in Kilburn, you know, you're kind of classic, like working class users kind of improvising and sort of trying to figure out where the next opportunity is going to come from and fingers in every pie, sort of, you know, hustlers. One who comes from a Caribbean background and the other who's white British. Uh, and they're, they're, they're not just sort of quite close friends, but they're also, you know, there's almost an intimacy to their relationship. You know, they, they really implicitly trust one another. They, they collaborate, you know, with sort of a, a minimum of words in some ways because they, they have such a tight knit relationship. And yet, you know, um, the, the white British guy is basically very xenophobic. He's got a sort of hardline anti-immigrant politics and, and all these sorts of interjections from his closest friend do very little to change this, right? And so on the one hand, they have these sorts of personal relationships. And every time, you know, for the white British guy, every time he has so, somebody who he does actually connect with or does actually get along with, he just sort of carves them out of the narrative. Oh, I don't mean him. I don't mean you. You know, um, the classic, I'm not racist, I have black friends sort of thing, which is this sort of incredibly frustrating excuse on the one hand. But on the other hand, when you look at how people live is often true, right? People have real, sincere, like meaningful fr friendships and connections, sometimes even build families with people or these sorts of lifelong collaborations with whom they sort of also have kind of discriminatory views. And so what's happening there is, you know, there's a politics of personal connection. There's a politics of how people build relationships and collaborations on a day-to-day basis. And then on the other hand, there's the politics of storytelling, right? And, and, and how do we approach minority groups or migrants as categories? And, and somehow those everyday connections don't necessarily work to undermine those sort of more categorical ideas that we might take on. At the same time, those categorical ideas might not sort of adhere to those everyday relationships. So to get, to get the politics of sort of diversity and difference right, you know, it, it kind of plays out on both those levels. And, and when we talk about that doubleness, you know, the sort of welcome home, but also go away kind of phenomenon that you see in a lot of British politics, some of that doubleness is about these different forms of politics, right? That, that our stories don't map onto our relationships or vice versa. I think in this book, you do really well to balance both and to, you know, give the reader a sense of both degrees. You speak about the personal a lot and you mentioned, you know, the two working class uh, individuals there. I think, is that Daniel and Kev? That's Daniel and Kev. Yeah. And I, I thought that was a really, really great story. I believe it was Daniel, his family were the first black family mm -hmm. on their street. And he had sort of grown to deal with the racism that he encountered on a day-to-day -day basis by leaning into kind of self-sufficiency mm -hmm. um, you describe in the book. And then, you know, as you say, he has his friend Kev. And I think that kind of goes back to 
some, you know, some of that is kind of the stories we tell ourselves to survive day to day. Do you see that as, you know, as survival as something that's really key to the story of, you know, identity and difference that people try and tell themselves every day? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so, so survival is definitely a part of it. Um, and I think, you know, a, another, another kind of argument I make in the book is, um, looking at what sometimes gets branded as identity politics, right? Um, which I'm, I'm not, I think, I think that label often gets used in a very dismissive way. Um, and, and what I try to do is, is tell a story that's really about survival, right? That it marginalized groups and I focus on sort of, you know, racialized minorities, but, um, you know, touch on sort of women and, um, sexual minorities as well. If, if these sorts of groups are in some ways turning inwards, if they're saying, you know, we don't want to collaborate, if they're becoming warier of kind of broad coalitions, uh, a lot of that actually comes from a sort of 100 to 200 to 400 year history, if you sort of want to go back to the beginning of slavery, where, you know, um, these groups have been sort of incorporated into sort of bigger social movements and called on to sort of, you know, testify to their pain and speak um, speak about their experience and sort of be a part of the coalition. And then when, when, when it comes time to sort of dividing the spoils, they always sort of end up on the outside or sort of on the bottom rung of things, right? So there's a sort of 200 year history of, you know, the, 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 the chapter is titled Waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this long, long history of sort of waiting for the gains of quality, for the gain, the sort of promise of freedom to be realized in a lot of these communities. And so in some ways, that valorization of your own identity, you know, this desire to be sort of self-sufficient as a community, even this sort of, you know, anthropologists might call it fetishization of your identity, right? So, so, so you take it as the be-all and end-all of the world. You know, you say, um, I, I use the story of, um, from, a, from a young black guy, white, um, who, who sort of talks about not wanting to date anybody who isn't black because he finds the experience sort of alienating and just, just assumes, you know, in advance that th- there's no possibility of connection. Um, with sort of people from other backgrounds. And so he, he, he does all these sorts of anti-racist um, sort of things on the one hand and then kind of reproduces this sort of very racially divided narrative on the other, right? Where you can't connect um, intimately, especially across these boundaries. But, but that sort of thinking, you know, that sort of putting all the weight, you know, relationships and economic prospects and who's going to care for you and who's going to have your back when, um, you know, things actually sort of hit the fan. Um, putting all of that weight on identity is really a response to that long historical struggle for survival, I think. So I think we're far too quick to dismiss some of those, um, what, what gets called identity politics um, these days, because we don't appreciate that history. And that makes it also hard to sort of actually bring people back on board, because then we're not working to redress the sort of roots of that wariness. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. There is another bit that really fascinated me particularly. I mean, firstly, you know, early on you write about how, you know, in our day-to-day lives, um, more than ever, we're coming in contact with difference, um, you know, in our workplaces, in our communities, and through the internet. And so as a result of that, you have a lot of people who believe that conflict is a near inevitability, and it's just a natural result of living uh, with people who are different 
um, than us. Uh, how do you see that? Well, so so I think what I say in the book is we are coming into um, into contact with difference more and more, right? Um, our you know me- media is becoming increasingly diversified, but also you know we have this great freedom in how we live now, where we can really shape our lifestyles. Um, you know, it, 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 according to all these sorts of global trajectories and connections. So it's really possible to sort of be a billion different sorts of people and to come into contact with a million different sorts of people, right? So differences become a facet of the everyday experience in this way. Um, but then I think what happens is this becomes sort of volatile because we have this older story, and I really do treat it as a story, that difference is a threat. So on the one hand, these encounters with difference are an everyday reality. And on the other hand, we have this way of thinking that isn't just sort of culturally embedded, but again, part of the argument of the book is it's embedded in our sort of democratic structures that treats difference as this threat. Um, and so it creates a sort of increasingly volatile situation when, when you bring those things together. And so a lot of the, what the book is trying to do is on the one hand, trace how that story developed and again, how it got embedded in the way in which we approach democracy but also equally give weight to that alternative story that it's not a threat, right? To, to really shine the spotlight on these stories of people finding creative ways of coming together, connecting, reworking identity, building things with their difference rather than against it. And it seems like a lot of that concept, a, a big driver of that idea is, as well as, you know, natural survival is man-made. It's, mm. it's political expediency um, to create a lot of that conflict. When you speak to people, you know, when you speak to people in Kilburn or in your own communities, do you find that they've often taken that as fact? A lot of the, a lot of kind of the political experience that they're, that they're given, you know, do you find that people sort of accept those terms without really pushing back naturally, you know, people from, you know, either the left mm. or the right? So I, th- I think this is, again, the beauty of anthropology, right, is that you don't have to have a sort of neat answer because you, you pay attention in some ways to the comp- complexity of day-to-day life. And so in some ways, yes, in some ways, no, right? That there, there, there are these stories that are so dominant, so institutionalized and hard to escape in some ways about difference being a threat that I think almost everybody I talk to reproduce them in certain ways, right? But what I'm equally interested in are the sorts of openings and the gaps where people don't do that, where they move beyond it, where they find ways of connecting, right? Um, and I think part of the challenge is, though, that when people try to build stuff, the models that they have for building ways of coming together themselves often produce this idea, right? So this comes back to exactly what you said, right? It's really, it's very institutionalized. It's very institutionalized in the structure, I think, of our democracy. Um, And what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, if you look at the history of sort of how democracy developed um, and and specifically liberal democracy, right? That's really the template um, for our sort of modern day system, you know, mm-hmm. and I use liberalism sort of in the, in the sense, not of kind of left or right yeah. that it gets used today, you know, not, it's, I don't mean the liberal Democrats in the UK, um, but, but sort of liberalism is a sort of philosophy that puts a lot of emphasis on sort of individual freedom that sort of draws a line between public and private spheres and then, um, puts politics only sort of in, in, into the public sphere, right? The, the roots of that were all about identifying forms of human commonality, right? So democracy emerged at a time where society was getting bigger and more complicated and people were sort of stressing, pulling up their hair over, how do we do politics with strangers, right? How do we be accountable and owe rights and derive, and derive obligations with people we've never met, right? Um, and, and the sort of philosophical answer to this became, well, we can trust our fellow citizens and we can sort of derive rights and obligations because we have something in common, right? And that was sort of the the, the, the high, high level answer. And then people sort of debated what that thing in common was. You know, some people said it was sort of rationality. Some people said, it was, you know, um, Adam Smith, this is sort of famous stuff on market, said it was a very sort of economic sort of rationality and people picked up on that. Other people more recently have argued it's a form of human dignity, right? So, but, but whatever it was, it was the idea that like sort of some essence, some commonality was what held the polity together. And that's all well and good to say, you know, in the abstract, okay, we're all rational, right? But but then you have to define what rationality looks like. You can't get away from having to define it. And as soon as you do, those, those categories end up with an outside, right? So now suddenly, you know, for example, if your model of rationality is the merchant, you know, people who sort of think in very calculative ways, then people who might look more emotional 
um, people who, you know, act on the basis of sort of care and connection and family and kinship, or who sort of kind of can't put everything into sort of these quantitative figures, might look less rational to your way of judging, right? And so then suddenly, not only does rationality have an outside, but it actually falls under threat from that outside, right? So now, now the basis for our sort of democratic social life, which is rationality, let's say, um, is suddenly threatened by anybody who gets labeled as a rational, right? So a lot of, a lot of the way in which democracy has been built has been through these sorts of very essentialist forms of thinking that says we have to have something in common and anybody who doesn't embody that, anybody who doesn't sort of perform it perfectly is a threat to not just sort of, you know, society or culture, but actually to the sort of democratic order. And, and that might sound sort of very philosophical and abstract, but what was really interesting was to see the way in which that sort of sense of, you know, threat, the, the sense of people assuming that I don't know if I can, you know, can connect with these people. I don't know if we, um, you know, can cooperate because I can't see that we have these things in common. How that model sort of reproduces itself really at the everyday level, right? So that commonality becomes the basis for connection, but it doesn't have to be. Right. And I think that as you highlight incredibly well in the book, there is that constant search that people think that you need to make to build those connections in order to have that ordered society that you mentioned. There comes a point where any community has to determine how you know they move forward as one. And you talk about two political theories, liberalism and civic republicanism, which you touched on both, I think, briefly moments ago. Can you give us just a, a sort of a brief explanation of both? And thinking in terms of most communities, have you found that communities lean on one particular theory or is there kind of a mix yeah. of both ideas? So, you know, in the book, I'm interested in how these political traditions basically work as frameworks for imagining difference. And liberalism, as I was saying, really imagines difference in terms of these sorts of core essences, right? So there's something that we have to have in common for politics to work. Yeah. And then everything else is allowed to differ, but it's allowed to differ as a private matter, right? So if you have a different religion than me, you know, if you have different values, if you want to do something different with your life, that, that's valid, but it's valid as a private matter. You can use it to make a claim on me. Um, as a citizen, the only things you can use to make a claim on me are the things that we have in common, right? Our, our capacity for reason, our capacity for dignity, whatever it is, right? And so then, then those commonalities become incredibly loaded. And a lot of the history of social struggle over the sort of past 100, 150 years has been about expanding that liberal framework. It's about, about being saying, no, 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 look, you know, women are rational and they deserve the vote and they don't belong just yeah. in the private sphere. Yeah. You know, it's about saying, you know, civil rights, right? That like equal protection under the law for minorities um, in order to have equal opportunities, equal dignity, right? It's about, it's about that equality, about holding something in common, right? Um, and then civic republicanism is this sort of almost opposing tradition that, um, you know, has, has its roots just like liberalism kind of all the way back with the ancient Greeks, but really treats not only politics, but human difference and human commonality is something much more negotiated and much more fluid, right? So rather than saying we can only come together on the basis of what we have in common, we can only participate in democracy on the basis of what we have in common, that commonality already needs to be established. Civic republicanism says by acting together, by being together, we will discover what we have in common. And by acting together and by being together, that commonality might transform. Um, and that, that commonality might not, you know, it, it, that, that it can sort of take on a whole bunch of different forms. It doesn't have to be sort of, you know, some common human essence. It might just be a common social or political project. It might be sort of, you know, the thing we are doing is what we have in common. So, so it's, it's a lot more flexible and creative in that way. But what it doesn't do very well, and this comes back to, you know, some of the discussion of identity politics, is because commonality, because the basis of your inclusion in democracy because, the, because of the basis of your ability to make claims on others is always being negotiated, it's always up for grabs, it's a pretty poor way of assuring rights. And so, you know, the history of, again, civil rights movements um, and other movements for equality has been in some ways a turn a little bit away from the civic Republican, civic Republican tradition and towards the sort of liberal, liberal tradition because it's a sort of more ironclad guarantee of rights, a more ironclad guarantee of inclusion. And not necessarily because, you know, they're bought into that whole framework for how you define human difference and the sort of stark borders that it comes with, 
But because there's a very pragmatic solution to sort of exclusion and to the sort of daily struggles that people are facing, they said, no, look, look we, we need rights that are not up for negotiation. Right. That constant idea that, oh, no, you know, within time we can renegotiate basic rights. I guess that's always determined by, you know, whoever the dominant group in any one society is. That's right. And so I'm trying to walk a really fine line in the book because, you know, historically these two traditions of democracy have often been opposed to one another, right? Um, and you see civic republicanism playing out more as a sort of lo political logic, more within sort of civil society, community groups, and you see liberalism really playing out in sort of state politics, right? The ways in which rights are kind of upheld by the force of the law and written into law and so on. Um, but but these, these are often seen as clashing and I'm trying to take an approach that's sensitive to the limits of each of them, but that also suggests Again, not because I think so, but because you can see people in Kilburn doing this sort of tremendously creative thing. Um, I'm trying to suggest that there's actually ways of bringing them together and playing the sort of strengths of each other off against the other to correct the weaknesses as it is, right? So where, you know, republicanism leaves you sort of open to this sort of vulnerability of the mass, you know, your rights are always being negotiated, your inclusion is always being negotiated, and that can leave you quite vulnerable. Um, liberalism offers you this guarantee of rights and that can be quite useful and vice versa, you know, where liberalism has these sorts of very stark forms of inclusion, belonging, um, and, and even of dividing humanity, you know, republicanism can open things up a little bit more and help, help you sort of find new ways of coming together. And so, so I think the book is really making a plea for playing those traditions off of one another not sort of as opposed, but as complementary. Yeah, I mean, you know, in sort of civic republicanism, I can imagine, you know, a scenario where is you can say, you know, people have these fundamental rights and as society, we will continue to decide where we want to go when faced with new challenges. So for example, challenges of the internet and other new technologies that might come into a society and they may determine how as a community, you know, we want to engage with that while maintaining basic rights. Yeah, well, I think there's some... Some of our most pressing political issues that we face today, um, we're not going to get very far unless we sort of reincorporate that sort of civil republican lens. And so I, I, I bring up two examples in the book that are that are worth talking about. One, which is, you know, um, reparations around sort of the legacies of colonialism or slavery. And the other, which is climate change, which might seem like odd, belf, odd bedfellows to put together, right? But What's going on in both of those is there are issues where the logic of equality that's sort of so central to liberalism falls short. Right? So if you look at reparations, you know, the argument is that, um, you know, the sort of white majority groups in places like America or Britain have benefited from the historical um, exploitation of sort of communities of color. And so some, some sort of restitutive debt is owed, right? Something, something is owed to make that right. Um, which, which is, which is a, a great principle, you know, but then you, then you have to do the arithmetic, right? And sometimes the arithmetic is you have some poor white people whose ancestors, you know, um, might, have, might well have benefited, but, you know, that money's been spent or that money never reached certain communities. Um, or, and, and that might even be true at a you know, societal level that the sort of benefits that accrue to sort of, you know, most citizens from those colonial legacies are no longer sort of equal to what a fair level of reparations would be, right? Um, and so, so the logic of equality, you know, it would be fair to take from these people, to give to other people, might not get you all the way there with reparations. Right. And what you actually need is a sort of logic of solidarity, a logic of, you know, being together as a common project. And that's what the civic republican tradition gives you. And climate change is similar, right? It's about what we owe to now, not sort of, not what we owe in terms of past harms, but it's about what we owe to future generations, right? And it's about us quite potentially giving up something in the here and now so that there can be a livable planet 100 years from now. And we're not going to see the benefits from that. But we need a political logic that's not just about, you know, is that actually a fair trade-off for, for me as a person? That's not fair, right? I'm going to be dead. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah. we need a political logic that sees things as a common project, that sees my fate tied to the fate of others and to fate the fate of people in the future and values that sort of interconnection, interdependency in its own right, not necessarily based on a logic of equality and fair chances, right? Um, and, 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 and I think that sort of civic republican logic is essential for those sorts of projects and we're falling short 
in part because we're not building that sense of interdependency and interconnection into these political claims. You write in part, there's almost nothing fixed about how we form our identities, yet we treat identity with deadly seriousness. How do you think people should look at the concept of identities? Right. So this is another place where we can draw a lot of interesting insight from anthropology, right? Because what anthropology teaches us on the one hand is that identity is this hugely flexible thing, right? So if you look at different cultural groups um, across history and across kind of the world, you see all, all these forms of fluidity and flexibility, right? Groups assimilate one another all the time. They sort of swap members around. People change ethnicity, right? Um, and not in a sort of Rachel Dolezal faking it way, right? But in a, in a sort of, you know, we've adopted children from this other neighboring cultural group and we've raised them as our own. And now we, you know, they, they, they truly, we truly believe and they truly believe themselves to be of us, right? Um, and so all the sorts of things that we might say about identity is sort of, you know, in our blood and, in, in, and sort of carried through descent or carried through sort of these uniform fundamental cultures. None of that holds up when you look at the record of human diversity that's out there because people are playing with identity all the time. And people are also playing with it in ways where they often don't consider difference as the sort of oppositional category, right? They consider difference as something sort of sacred and invigorating to society or just as something that almost doesn't exist, that everybody has the potential to become part of us, right? So there's all this variability and flexibility on the one hand um, as to how we think about identity. And then on the other hand, you know, that same anthropological record tells us that identity becomes, as you say, deadly serious, right? And so we, we kill and die in the name of our nations or the name of our social groups. Um, you know, we sort of really take identity to heart. And again, it, I think it's not about committing to one view or another that identity is totally fluid or identity is sort of totally fixed and essential, but again, playing these ideas off of each other, right? And um, so respecting the ways and acknowledging the ways in which people feel grounded, feel rooted in the world, people draw strength, people draw meaning from the cultural traditions that they um, hold to, from the sort of perspectives that they've inherited, from things that they take for granted because you grew up in a certain environment. All of that really is a fundamental part of the human experience, but so is the knowledge that that could change. You know, so is the fact that we are always kind of becoming new people. And so again, it's about finding a space in between holding to this really fixed, inflexible notion of identity and a totally fluid one, and instead playing sort of fixity and fluidity off one another. While reading the book, you know, one particular phrase I've heard time and time again uh, kept coming to mind, which is that, you know, race wouldn't matter without racism. Um, mm -hmm. And so if, if you take racism out of the equation entirely anywhere in the world, then innately we wouldn't really be that interested in grouping ourselves based on race. Is that, is that sort of what you're trying to say? Is, is that something that you've seen in your work and you've come to sort of understand? Yeah. I mean, so I, I'll, I'll give you a sort of far away example and I'll give you a close by example. Um, one of the groups I talk about in the book are the Nayaka, who are hunter-gatherer people who are in India, who sort of live in the forest. Um, and they have this view, effectively, that the world is made up of relatives. And the thing that matters in determining whether or not you're related is not sort of how you look, you know, um, the color of your skin, the shape of your physical features, whatever it might be, but it's whether or not you're present. As long as you're there and you're taking part in social life, you are a kid, you're related. And they sort of attribute this sort of relate, related status, not only to other people, but to animals and to spirits as well. So it's sort of, you know, the world is one kind of great big kind of network of relations based on presence. And that, that's definitely a view that totally disregards anything we would imagine as race, right? Um, connected sort of heritage or place of origin or physical features or anything like that, right? However you imagine a race, the Nayaka aren't having it. Um, so absolutely, you know, there, there, there are ways of race, as we understand it and as we have institutionalized it, coming not to matter. And then, you know, you look at Western societies and as you say, you know, race matters in large part because we've institutionalized it, because we've made it the basis for sort of, you know, allocating rights and privileges in all these subtle but very important ways. Um, and sort of, sh we've really shaped Western history in meaningful ways based on race. But even then, I think what's interesting is race can also matter, come not to matter despite racism, right? So 
what what's really interesting to me are these moments where people start pushing beyond these sorts of inherited logics of racial difference. And um, the other story I tell in the book is this community cafe that's, you know, on this estate in Kilburn where I lived, that really was a space where people are coming together from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and it was, it was really especially favored by mothers because it was on a Friday afternoon. So if you're sort of on parental leave, um, you're not working with your young child, you know, it's a nice place to drop in. In the community center where it was held, it was right after a sort of parenting group. And so lots of people's kids would effectively sort of grow up in this cafe space where there was a little play area and place for all the kids to run around while the parents took a break. And there's this story where it's coming up on the first day of school for some of these kids. The first day they're ever going to sort of be away from their families or whatever. And these two young girls are brought in to show off their new school uniforms. Um, and one is black British and the other is white British in terms of their backgrounds. And uh, the black British girl is sort of beaming and, you know, like, isn't this a great uniform? Like, I'm so excited to go to school. And the white British girl looks totally distraught, right? These two are very good friends, but for some reason, she's like really crestfallen with this whole outing. And somebody asks her, you know, like, what's wrong? Like, oh, no, you know, you really look lovely in your uniform, you know. Um, and and uh, the white British girl goes... But now that we're dressed the same, no one will be able to tell us apart. And, you know, it's a lesson about what being in those sorts of environments where people connect routinely, where people sort of push beyond the logic of sort of race and racism as a matter of course, to the point where it fades into the background. And then you grow up in a place like that and you grow up with friendships that just sort of, you know, it doesn't matter where these people come from. Everybody's sort of together and playing and having a great time. And, and it can almost sort of obliterate the concept for you. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure that girl will relearn it in other ways because, you know, she still exists in the world. But, but it shows the power of those sort of everyday situations to actually start undoing, the, you know, the category of race, even despite the sort of broader condition of racism that might exist. And I think what's really powerful is in stories like this where you see people sort of no longer taking racial difference for granted, you know, it's not that they become colorblind and somehow, you know, ignore the injustices in society, but that's when they encounter those injustices, they, they resonate as injustice, right? If your starting point is these distinctions ought not to matter, and then suddenly you realize that they do, that is going to be an upsetting experience, you know, and, it's, and right, rightly so. And, and that's a very different sort of basis for building connection, building solidarity, than you would have if you start from taking these sorts of racial categories for granted and then trying to unpick them. I think there's a lot of power actually in the ways in which we can kind of naturalize ways of seeing beyond it and then reintroducing the problem. I think that's really interesting. I think that's something on a personal level that I've experienced um, with, uh, you know, white friends who have almost certainly kind of gone through their lives, not necessarily, and I'd say sort of young white friends who have gone through their lives not necessarily thinking so much about race or having to think so much about race and then, you know, being hit by some, you know, national great injustice. And then they mm. really feeling that injustice and wanting to take action rather than what people might assume would happen if you haven't really thought about race is to kind of try and brush it under the carpet and just try and move on yourself. But, you know, you, you seem to really take that injustice um, almost kind of personally That's and right. kind of as it? an affront with the way that it's kind of like disrupted your right, right. understanding Whereas of the world. I think, you know, if you grow up with the sense that racial differences are somehow more naturalized, even if you don't have ill intent, I think those injustices, you know, they become part of the background noise of your life, right? And so a lot of people who mean well might still lack the sort of, especially the emotional resources, but maybe also sort of the meaningful resources to really respond to those um, in, in as forceful a way. You take the reader on a baby's journey towards uh, discovering their place in the social world, uh, discovering empathy through mimicking and mirroring the people around them. What does that teach us about the development of our identities and difference? You know, people talk about nature versus nurture, but I would say nurture is our nature, right? Our, our nature is to become different in relation to specific cultural environments, right? And so what that teaches us about difference is that on the one hand, it's an inescapable facet of human existence, that we are always going to grow and develop into different sorts of people with different perspectives, different values, different orientations towards the world based on how we are raised, what, what is familiar to us, what is safe to us, what is desirable or um, what makes sense in terms of those early experiences, and then how we continue to sort of learn and grow from the world 
um, as we go throughout our lives. And so, you know, models of sort of dealing with difference that sort of seek to just insist on commonality miss the ways in which difference really is a sort of rich and generative part of the human experience, right? It's not something we're getting away from. But on the other hand, we have that process of learning and growing and becoming in common. And so even where we might come from different starting points, part of our humanity is always the ability to become otherwise. And that's what can kind of connect us. And that's again, part of the argument of the book is how we have tools for coming together, for bridging differences, for developing new forms of understanding, for developing new ways of caring and connecting and fighting for one another based on our capacity to learn and grow and empathize and tell stories um, throughout our lives and not just from early childhood. That's something that is personally so fascinating to me, um, how people kind of build their identities on a sort of day-by-day basis and by the communities around them and the individuals around them and those specific experiences. And you closed the book in this really fascinating way. And I assume you also sort of closed your time in Kilburn by coming to this understanding. You push back against the notion of a single identity story across the community, but also of just wild difference between people. And instead you describe it as diversity being woven together to create this shared experience. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about that. So, you know, if we, if we have a single story that we tell about ourselves, that story is always going to have an outside. It's always going to create an other who doesn't belong, an other who is sort of somehow lesser by the terms of that story. But at the same time, you know, if we, if we just let it become the case that we each have the sort of right to tell our own stories about ourselves, right, that we sort of let a thousand flowers bloom, um, the risk is that we become disconnected. Right? In some ways, this is the prevailing approach that we're seeing in our modern society is that, you know, the ways in which we've fought for equality, the ways in which we've fought for sort of rights for different groups who've sort of been marginalized historically has been to allow them to tell their own story. It's been for the right of self-definition, for freedom, for autonomy. And these, th- these things are valuable and I'm not saying that they're not, but what I'm saying is there, there needs to be a thread of interdependency that runs through that freedom, runs through that autonomy and ties us to one another. Because otherwise the risk is that we lose the ability to sort of build things together, to understand one another, that we, we take our identities and our own experience to sort of be all and end all of the world, right? And we turn it inward. Um, and that's when I think you do start to see difference starting to disintegrate, you know, communities starting to disintegrate your civic life is if we lose that thread of um, connectivity that can run between differences. But, you know, again, one of these great lessons from Kelburn that I learned was that there were organizations who were basically building, building forms of community and building sort of forms of togetherness that did both, right? That, that sort of insisted on telling a particular story that was going to resonate the most with a particular group, you know, whether that was sort of young black Londoners or it was older people who were sort of wanting to, you know, connect with the neighborhood as they sort of aged. Um, you know, they, they were telling particular stories, but they were telling those stories with references to other groups and to other stories and to other trajectories. And those references created the sense of interconnectivity and interdependency so that your story was your own, but never just your own. And I, I, th- I think that's a really powerful gesture for thinking about how, you know, how do we secure rights and how do we secure the different needs of different communities and different groups who are gonna face different struggles, who are gonna need different things. But on the other hand, how do we do it in a way that sort of also allows us to build a more just society at a bigger scale? And it's through those threads of interdependence and interconnectivity. Personally, I could talk for hours on this topic, but unfortunately, I think that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Fahan, for joining us and talking to us about your book. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Fahan Samanadi's book is How to Live with Each Other, out now from Profile Books. I've been Deepo Falyun, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. Well, that's a wrap. If you'd like to support Intelligence Squared in bringing the world more smart and incisive debates and discussions like the one we've just heard, hit subscribe on your Apple Podcast app and you'll get access to ad-free listening, extra bonus content and early access to selected episodes. It's really easy. Just hit the subscribe button beside our logo. Your small fee will help us to keep getting the best minds on to discuss and debate the world's most important topics.